0: Uh, this is uh, this is an exciting day for me. I, I pray it's an exciting day for our church as well. And um, I would invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open them to the book of First Peter. Uh, if you're not familiar with where that is, it's toward the back of your Bible. Uh, you can use your table of contents there. We're going to be in First uh, Peter for several weeks. Uh, Leading up to leading up to Christmas and some other things before we get into the word, though, I need to take care of one small bit of business. This is um, this is you all are the first uh, group of people that I have ever preached to in my first senior pastorate. So that's worthy of a picture. I don't normal I don't normally bring my phone with me to the pulpit, but this once this is for posterity. And I appreciate that all of you uh, have uh, gone to great lengths to look your best today, not knowing I was going to take So this is a panoramic, so stay still. There are some of you who are guests this morning, and I'm really glad you're here. And you're thinking, I'm never coming back. He's just going (laughs) to take pictures every week. No, seriously, I am am glad you're here. Some of you I've met, some of you I haven't had a chance to yet, and um, and I look forward to uh, glad that you're here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. In in beginning uh, this series in First Peter, I don't know how to do it, but, uh, but other than how best to do it, other than to kind of let you know, give you a roadmap of where we're going to be over the next several weeks. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time in prayer and thinking and conversation with, uh, with trusted brothers uh, about what to preach first, and there are a lot of thoughts out there about what pastors should preach in their first pastorate or as their, as their first sermon series in a new pastorate. Um, I could tell you this: first Peter was not in the top three uh, but, but first Peter is a book that I, I have s- studied several times in my life that I am challenged by every time I come to it, and one that I think will be edifying. ...to us as we work through it as a, as a church body. So here's where we're going to be over the next several weeks. Uh, beginning today and for the next five weeks after today, for a total of six, we'll be in 1 Peter. And then that will take us through the month of September. Then in October, we have a very uh, special opportunity to celebrate something in church history that does not come around every year. We have the opportunity this year to celebrate the, the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation... Uh, 500 years ago, this October, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the church door uh, at the castle church at, at Wittenberg in Germany, and there sparked a, a reformation, al- almost, if you will, a revolution. Uh, in terms of how the church would be And what the church would How they would think of themselves And how the church would relate to God's word And, and there were out of the Reformation Five uh, major theological convictions That came to the fore And as the Lord would have it There are in this 500th, uh, this 500th year of the Reformation Five Sundays in October And so we're going to take one Sunday uh, Of each of the five in October To look at those five convictions From a biblical standpoint That came out of the reformation. Those are that God's word alone is authoritative and sufficient. All that we need for salvation and godly living. Secondly, that salvation comes by God's grace alone to us. It's only by his gift to us. Uh, Thirdly, salvation comes by grace, but through faith that is through trusting and fourth of all in Christ. So salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ and only in Christ. This was one of the core Uh, Convictions of the reformers and, and those that came after. And then the last is that everything in all of creation throughout all history is ultimately to God's glory alone. That's where we'll be in October. And then for three weeks in November, we'll return back to 1 Peter. We'll conclude 1 Peter in November, and that will get us up to the Advent season, okay? So that's where we're going. And that does not give you an excuse to not come any of those weeks, okay? So be here i 'm looking forward to it it 's going to be a challenging time in god 's word for us this fall, um, but I think challenging and also encouraging edifying uh, we 're we're going to be convicted by some things, uh, but we 're going to be encouraged by many things in god 's word also uh, as we go through it having said that let 's uh, turn our attention to first Peter, and today we 're in the first two verses of first Peter first Peter chapter one verses one and two if you're able would you do this would you stand this morning uh, in honor of reading uh, God's word together Peter in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says this Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elected exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning in a manner of submission, humbly. God, placing ourselves under your authority... That you might change us as we hold up your word as a mirror to ourselves. God, encourage your church this morning through your word. Edify us by it and in the truths that are communicated to us. Help us as a result, God, to to live lives of obedience to Jesus. To live lives of gospel urgency because of Jesus. You speak this morning. God, your servants are listening. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. As we work through 1 Peter, I want you to know this is going to be a challenging book for me, and and I expect it to be challenging for you all as well. I think, though, in that, it will also be incredibly encouraging to us. We are, in the course of our study in First Peter, going to encounter several difficult texts together. I'm just going to lay that out there. And one of them comes to us today. But my prayer is this, that we would, prayerfully, as a body of believers, submitting ourselves to God's Word, that we would bear together with patience with our own human frailty and limitation, that we bear together in humility, understanding that God's word is perfect and we are not. And so if there's a problem with something in God's word, it's probably not a problem with God or his word, but a problem with us. And so we're going to patiently and humbly submit ourselves to his word so that we can be changed by it and so that we can better understand God's word, apply it to our lives and live in light of what it's calling us to do. I've titled the sermon this morning, Greetings of Grace. Here in these two verses of 1 Peter 1, Peter's just greeting the church. He's greeting the believers that he's writing this letter to. And so we see that these are greetings of grace from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, it may seem odd to you that Peter would sign his letter at the beginning of the letter, but it would not have been odd to Peter or to other people living 2,000 years ago. That's how you addressed letters. You started with the person you were sending it from or the person that was writing it, and then you would address the people that it was to. So he puts a salutation at the beginning. This is... Peter, the same Peter who was a disciple, an apostle, follower, and friend of Jesus, the spokesman for the disciples, the guy who couldn't ever get his foot out of his mouth, and yet God used in miraculous ways to build the church and encourage believers. Peter is writing this letter likely around 60, the year 62 or 63 A.D. In 64 A.D., Rome, the city of Rome, would burn to the ground. Many believe it was... Uh, the psychotic paranoid Emperor Nero who had the fire started in Rome so that he could rebuild it from the ground up in his liking. Whether it was Nero or someone else, Nero took the opportunity at the burning of Rome to blame the Christians for the fire. He would have Christians rounded up, killed, dipped in oil, hung along the streets and set on fire at night to light the streets of Rome. This was the this is is true persecution and suffering for faith in Jesus. In some ways, unlike uh, many ways that we've seen in history since, Peter, the apostle of Jesus, would die in Rome during this persecution. Now, Peter, in this letter, does not refer to suffering throughout the course of this of his first letters, in this way. He, he, excuse me, let me say that different. He does refer to suffering, to hardship in his letter. But the kind of suffering that he refers to is not the kind of suffering that comes with Nero's first per- persecution. It's not the kind that was characterized during uh, Nero's terrifying campaign of, uh, of persecution against Christians. Rather, this letter of First Peter is written with uh, the sort of scent of suffering in the air with a systematic persecution being like a speck on the horizon, beginning to grow nearer and larger. Peter delivers this letter with the help of a trusted friend, and missionary partner of his name, Silvanus, who we hear about in chapter 5, verse 12, who either took dictation of Peter's letter uh, himself or delivered it to the church, which is in modern Turkey, the church scattered in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Maybe he was both. Perhaps he was both scribe and courier. Uh, here on the screen behind you, you will see an image of a copy of the letter of First Peter from around the year 200 AD. So this was uh, uh, copied about 140 years or so after Peter first wrote his letter. Uh, this comes from a collection uh, that, was, uh, that was purchased by a man in the 1950s from an Egyptian uh, antiquities market. And so that's, uh, this is what early Christians, how they would have received God's word in copies written like this. It's written in Greek. It reads from left to right like we read English. And Peter's letter actually begins on the right side um, uh, of this uh, sort of bifold page there. I don't know what those little tornado squiggly things are on the other side. Um, we are talking about that this morning. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, more research would probably let me know, but I think it's just the the uh, copier's way of showing that one letter had ended and another was beginning. So Peter writes this letter, and his friend Silvanus uh, either takes dictation or takes it to the churches. And this letter, 1 Peter, like most letters... Um, Are signed Peter indicates who it is that's writing Peter, an apostle of Jesus Paul does the same in most of his letters In fact, uh, almost all of the letters Except for Hebrews in the New Testament Are signed by their author And so we can be reasonably assured That Peter, who's a friend, the follower of Jesus That he's the one who wrote this letter Should inspire And that the church understood this And never swayed from that understanding This should inspire great confidence in us In the word of God that the authorship of the New Testament is it's widely attested in history, and without reasonable doubt, this, this word is, is uh, intact, if you will. In this letter, we have, in First Peter's letter, words of encouragement from an eyewitness to Jesus, friend of Jesus, witness to his death and resurrection, words of encouragement to a church that he's beginning to feel the, the pangs of suffering. So now put yourselves in the shoes of those who are receiving this letter for the first time. You are living in a world where it's beginning to be difficult to be a Christian. You see that to be a believer in Jesus in the Roman Empire is putting you at odds with the surrounding culture. You're weird. You're strange. People are starting to look at you funny. Maybe you lose a job opportunity or your family begin to ignore you because of your faith in Jesus. You're finding that in following Christ, you're, you're going to have to be prepared to be like a stranger to uh, people in a culture where you once felt quite at home. And with the furrowing of your brow and the tightening of your of your chest at the prospect of real persecution, real hardship for your faith in Jesus, you get a letter from one of Jesus own closest friends and disciples You get a letter from a father of the church, an example of the faith, who for the last 30 years has himself been arrested and beaten and chased out of towns for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And in this letter that he writes to you, concerned Christians, Peter says, hard times are coming. You can be sure of that. You are strangers because of your faith in this world. But God is doing something wonderful and glorious in you and for himself through your suffering Peter says, I know it hurts, but hang in, hang on, take heart. God is on the move. What are you going to do with that letter? 2,000 years ago, you received this letter. What are you going to do with it? You're going to read it like your life depends on it. You're likely going to make a copy of it like we've seen here so that you and your church family can read it again and again and again and be reminded of God's encouragement through the apostle Peter about what to do in the midst of suffering. You're going to cherish this letter for the encouragement of God through his servant Peter to the church. What are you going to do with this letter 2,000 years later? Certainly, we don't live in a time of persecution like that under Nero or Domitian later in the first century. Here in America, Christians aren't rounded up in the streets and killed and dipped in oil and set on fire to light the streets at night. But we are beginning in some ways, and certainly our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church around the world are experiencing pain, are experiencing difficulty for being Christians. Uh, Believers in America have lost their jobs, been sued, been taken to court because of their convictions about what they will and will not participate in, in society. I think that we, like the Christians who first received this letter 2,000 years later, and, and, and along with all of Scripture, these 66 books we call the Bible, we can and we must approach the Bible as trustworthy and reliable, knowing and believing that it conveys God's truth for all time. We should cherish this book. Cherish these words. Its authorship is affirmed by church history and by tradition. Its truth is uncorrupted from its original autographs. And because it has God for its author, through the inspiring and superintending of human authors, the truth that it communicates is for all time. First, Peter's not just for Christians who are dealing with hardship 2,000 years ago. Brothers and sisters, it's for us today. Amen. Friend, do you approach the Word of God this way? When you come to the Word of God in your daily Bible study, regular Bible study, or if you're not a believer, your occasional reading of the Bible, do you come to it expecting to hear from God? Do you come to it expecting to be changed by God? Do you come to it expecting to be encouraged by God? Are you prepared each time you open your Bible to hear God's voice from the pages of Scripture? Let me say this morning, we all should be. We all should be. This book is unlike any other. It has been preserved over the millennia because it is it is God's good and faithful true word to us. Let's approach it that way. These are greetings of grace from Peter, the apostle of Jesus, to the church 2,000 years ago and to us today. And he addresses this letter to those chosen by the triune God. Did you see that? He says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter addresses this letter to who he calls the elect exiles. Or some of your translations may say God's chosen or those living as foreigners or strangers. Peter explicitly, from the start, identifies these believers as those who have been chosen, who have been elect by God. The word that Peter uses here in the Greek is eklekton. You can see where we kind of get that word elect from. And that word is used uh, some 20 to 25 times of the church throughout the New, Te- New Testament, calling the church those who are chosen, those who are elect by God. And here Peter is speaking to Christians. But catch this, and this is important. He's using Old Testament language in referring to them as chosen people. From all over the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we know that the Hebrews, who will constitute eventually the nation-state of Israel in the course of the Old Testament, were chosen by God for his purposes. Specifically, to bring through them a Messiah who would crush the head of Satan and bring deliverance from sin and death. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, Moses reminds the people of Israel this. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Because he loves them. He loves them from eternity past and is keeping his promise to Abraham that through Abraham's offspring, the nations of the world would be blessed. And now here, Peter is calling the church chosen, elect, a people, now made not just of Jews, but of Jews and Gentiles who are chosen to do the same. If you flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, you'll see this. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, this is exactly the same language that is used uh, by God of Israel. Exodus 19, by the way, a people for his own possession that you may. Th- th- so that this is the purpose you've been chosen so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So then I I would challenge us, direct us to see how Peter is identifying believers in Jesus in this letter as the true Israel, chosen, holy, possessed by God for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This, Christian, is why you have been saved. This is what you receive for your election, for your having been chosen by God, to glorify God by proclaiming his wonderful grace in the gospel of Jesus. That's why he saved you. That's what he's chosen you for. If you take nothing else away from this brief discussion of election, and we'll look at it a little bit more, note this. That election, the doctrine of election, is not just, it's not about who an individual is. It's not about who you are or who I am. It's not about what you have done or what I have done to please God or to merit God's favor. But it's all about and because of God's love, And for the purpose of him bringing himself glory by saving sinners to proclaim the excellencies of the gospel of Jesus. So then see in verse 2, there are three prepositional phrases that describe this election. First, the church is elect. They are chosen with the Father's eternal intention. They're chosen with, in accordance with, the Father's eternal intention. Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. Now, already you see why we're dealing with a difficult text here. We're talking about election and foreknowledge, doctrines, understandings that that have been somewhat controversial in the church over uh, the last many years. This word foreknowledge, let me say this. It's not my intention here to ignite controversy in our body. Not at all. What I want to do is is try to open God's word for us so we can see and understand clearly these words and the way that God's word uses these things and and what God's word teaches about these things um, so that there would be greater unity as a body and not division. So that's why I call us to patience and humility uh, together as we work through this. This word foreknowledge is a word that means more than just knowledge of something before the fact. The idea of knowing someone is... Uh, in the Old Testament is consistent with loving someone, right? Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived a son, right? So knowing has, has this uh, connotation of also loving and being intimately involved with a person, being, uh, ha- having setting your uh, affection upon a person. And so when we come here in 1 Peter and several other places throughout the New Testament where God's foreknowledge and election are are mentioned together, we do well to understand and affirm at least two things. That foreknowledge is not not just about knowing before the fact. It implies something more. But first of all, we can all affirm this, I believe, that God is omniscient. He knows everything. That is a clear biblical teaching. God is omniscient. There is not a moment in history that has happened That has surprised God. There's not a process happening now that he is unaware of. And there is no event to come in the future that he has not already seen and known and prepared for. And this is quite good, friends. Can you imagine the insecurity you would have as a believer, as a Christian, worshiping a God who did not know what you would face tomorrow? In a case like that, you would be in the same place as God, not knowing what's coming. Having to plan for the future the same way that God is having to plan for the future and respond to the past and to the present. Praise God that he is not so limited. Praise God that he is omniscient. Praise God that we can have peace about today, knowing that he already knows all of our tomorrows and that he's fully prepared to meet the needs that we'll have that we don't even know that we have yet. God's omniscience is a comforting doctrine. It's a comforting thing about his very nature. So we affirm that. We understand that. We agree on that. Secondly, because God is omniscient, because he knows everything, we also must affirm that God knows from eternity past who will be saved by his grace through personal, willful trust in Jesus. And this is perhaps the most difficult part of this doctrine of election and of foreknowledge. Now, some have wrongly understood this doctrine to mean that God arbitrarily chooses whom he will save and whom he will not as though he's drawing names out of a hat. As though he's uh, playing the Powerball lottery with all of our names in this giant tumbler in heaven. Friends, nothing could be further from what Scripture teaches. I'll remind you again of the word that Peter uses here, foreknowledge. Knowledge implying more than just knowing something that's going to happen, but, but, but being intimately, deeply involved in that. Election is not a process by which God thoughtlessly casts human beings into one group or another. These will be saved, these won't. These I'll put in heaven, these I'll put in hell. And determines their every step to be carried out through their lives like robots. That's not what scripture teaches. No, Christian, election is the act of an eternal All-knowing, omniscient God who knew you before ever there was a you to be known. He loved you before ever there was a you to be loved. He knew your sin before you ever committed it. He knew the separation from him that it would cause. And he knew he would send his own son to die the death that you deserve to be raised from the dead. So that by your faith in him, you can be reconciled to God. All this he knew. All this He intended far before, long before he even spoke the words, let there be light. And in eternity past, God loved you, Christian. He determined to set his love on you in such a way as to draw you to the place and the time where you would lovingly and willingly take hold of him through trust in Jesus. And so here, know and understand, church, that foreknowledge and election are not centered ultimately upon you, but upon Jesus. Jesus. Even as God the Father foreknew from before the foundations of the earth those whom he would save by faith in Jesus, he chose before the foundations of the earth his own son to be the one to purchase that salvation. We just saw that in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. Or I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1, 20, Excuse me. There we read. He was, that is, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. In God, in foreknowing the fullness of his redemptive plan, his rescue plan of salvation, and all that he purposed, all that he intended in it, God the Father... "...has chosen those who would be saved to be his children, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit of God, and to be ambassadors and proclaimers of the good news of salvation in Jesus' name." So here's the point of what Peter is saying. Not that anyone, by by the doctrine of election, can know the mind of God and who is or who will or who will not be saved. Rather that in knowing, Christian, you have repented of your sin and that you have placed your faith in Jesus, you can have confidence in the midst of uncertain times because you can know that you are chosen by God. Saved by faith in His Son. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of election, church, hear, hear me say this. The doctrine of election is not a pedestal on which to stand from which the Christian can declare, look how special I am. Look how much God loves me. Boy, don't you want to be like me? That's not what the doctrine of election is about. That's not what the doctrine of election is for. Rather, the doctrine of election is a quiet corner in which the Christian kneels in meekness and in humble gratitude before God so as to say, how is it that you, Lord, could love and save a sinner like me? Well, the doctrine of election is clear. In scripture, not everything about it is perfectly clear to us in scripture. There is some mystery. I say some. There is much mystery in this, in this doctrine of election and, and, and how to understand it. And like I said, my goal is not to cause division. But Peter talks about it. So I want to open it for us and, and point us uh, to scripture and to understanding it rightly. Hear me also say, we're not going to plumb the depths of this doctrine in the time that we have this morning. So I would remind us of a word from theologian J.I. Packer, which is cited in this short book called Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung, an excellent book about the trustworthiness, the sufficiency, authority of God's Word. J.I. Packer says this, God then does not profess to answer in Scripture all of the questions that we, in our boundless curiosity, would like to ask about Scripture. He tells us merely as much as he sees we need to know as a basis for our life of faith. And God leaves unsolved some of the problems raised by what he tells us in order to teach us a humble trust in his veracity. That is a humble trust in his truthfulness. The question, therefore, that we must ask ourselves when faced with these puzzles is not, is it reasonable to imagine that this is so, but is it reasonable to accept God's assurance that this is so? Is it reasonable to take God's word and believe that he has spoken the truth, even though I cannot fully comprehend what he has said? The question carries its own answer. We should not abandon faith in anything God has taught us merely because we cannot solve all the problems which it raises. Our own intellectual competence is not the test and measure of divine truth. Let me read that again. Our own intellectual competence, what we are capable of understanding, is not the test and measure of divine truth. It is not for us to stop believing because we lack understanding but to believe in order that we may understand. Let me say this. Irrespective of what your background is and and how you approach the doctrine of election and foreknowledge, there is much, and I desire there to be much grace in our body as believers that we can talk about the differences that we have. And not talking about them for the sake of taking sides, but talking about them so that we can go to God's word and understand his word better together. That we can be edified. And and commit together to this. That there's one purpose for the church. Not to debate these doctrines and to waste our time in doing that, but for us to commit ourselves to the gospel of Jesus, to making him known, to inviting lost sinners to trust in Jesus. So, Peter's writing to God's chosen people who are chosen in accordance with God's divine and and eternal intention. Secondly, to those who are chosen through the Spirit's miraculous transformation. In verse 2, Peter says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. And here, we'll spend far less time. Salvation is the product of a miraculous transformation of the heart. You are saved By faith in Christ as the Holy Spirit miraculously transforms your heart. Paul details this in his short letter to the young pastor Titus in Titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 6. This is what Paul writes. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration that is being born again and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So then you see, Christian, that your salvation and election are through the sanctifying, the making, the holy making work of the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit works to give us eyes to see our sin for what it is. The Holy Spirit works to give us ears to hear the good news of Jesus. The Holy Spirit works to give us a heart that is softened so that we can respond to Jesus in faith and obedience, repenting of sin and trusting in him. The older I get, why are you laughing? The older I get, the more I realize how on my own, how wicked my own heart is. The older I get, the more I see that my heart on its own is constantly drawn towards sin and disobedience. Give me the option between keeping $20 for myself and giving $20 for the sake of the gospel. My heart's first inclination inclination is going to want to keep that $20 for myself. And that's a relatively mild example of the the fight between holiness and depravity that is in my soul on a day-to-day basis. My guest friend, Christian, you who know Jesus, you know this about yourself too. And you know that apart from God awakening your heart to your need for him, the, 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 the terribleness of your sin, that you would still be walking in it. That you would still be seeking sin and self and not a savior. But praise God that the Holy Spirit has softened our hearts, has opened our eyes and our ears To see and to hear and to know and to understand and to receive Jesus as Savior. It is through the Spirit's miraculous transformation. And the church is chosen. They are elect to be God's promised people. Peter says, for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. Now this is the purpose, this is the goal of God's affectionate choosing, of his affectionate election, to be that his people would be a new covenant people, a new people of promise. Peter's here making another connection to a pivotal point in Israel's history. You remember in the book of Exodus, God brings the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt to the, to, uh, the base of the mountain at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. He says, I'm going to make you a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for my own possession. Moses goes up on the mountain. He receives the law from the Lord. He comes back down in Exodus 24. He reads the law to the people. And in Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8, we read this. "'Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. "'And all the people answered with one voice and said, all, that the, "'All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. "'And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. "'He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, "'and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. "'And he sent young men of the people of Israel.'" who offered burnt sacrifices and sacrificed peace peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood of the sacrifice and he put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, that is the law that was written down, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, catch this, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. That is, he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what's the response of the people of Israel in hearing the law in Exodus at the base of Mount Sinai? It's a declaration of obedience to the law. All the Lord has said we will do and we will be obedient, Israel says. And what is the sign that then ratifies this covenant, this promise of God to be their God and of the people to be obedient to him? It is the people are sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. Peter, by using this Old Testament image, is telling the Christians of the churches in Asia Minor that they have been lovingly chosen by God, like Israel, to be obedient to him and to be sprinkled with the blood of the new covenant. But the blood of Jesus is so much more than a a mere peace offering to God, as we saw in Exodus. Peter says in chapter uh, 1 of this letter in verse 18, he says, Knowing that you have been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See and know this, church, that God has set his covenantal love on you, His love of promise on you in eternity past so that through the work of his Holy Spirit in you to make you holy, he would rescue you from worthless, pointless ways of living according to your sin and your own desires to save you from the death that you deserve from your sin so that by trusting in Jesus who died in your place on the cross, you can be saved. You can now live in obedience to what he has called you to do. You can be sprinkled with the blood of the lamb that cleanses you from all sin and unrighteousness. This is the coolest thing about what Peter is saying in this very simple verse. That nothing about salvation is by accident or chance or dumb luck. None of it is because of karma or good deeds or right thinking. Salvation, friends, is from and through and for the purposes of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one, working together for his own purposes. That he might save a people to himself from their sin. And in their love for God, who loved them first, this chosen, rescued, beloved people would be the bearers of good news that God forgives sins. That God gives abundant and everlasting life to all who entrust their lives to Jesus. And friend, if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, that is the message that we declare to you. That God forgives sins. And gives abundant and everlasting life to all who trust their lives to Jesus Christ. We as a church, <laughs> we invite you to share in the riches of God's grace. In the way that we as, as Christians do. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus' way. And, and, and you're wanting to. You, you're you feeling maybe even a, a tug, a pull in your life to to. To consider these claims of what the Bible says, I invite you to take grasp of what God is doing in your life. Trust Jesus. Turn from your sin and ask God through his Holy Spirit to make you new. That you might want to be obedient. That by your faith in Jesus, you would be considered sprinkled with his blood that, that was shed that your sins might be forgiven. And walk in obedience to Jesus this morning. But church, you who are Christians know this. That because God does nothing by accident, because he saves with divine intention, you can live with holy confidence in this life. You can live in holy confidence in this life, knowing that God has already seen the end of the story. I want to admit my humanity this morning. I have struggled with knowing how to illustrate this point to you. I can't think of a good story or, a, uh, uh, you know, a, a funny joke or, or a, a, you know, smart quote that, that will drive this home. So I would invite us then this morning uh, not to illustrate it, but to meditate on what we have just said. That believers can live with holy confidence because God saves with divine intention. I invite you right now. Let's take a moment and just meditate on that. In your own way, for for just a second, think on this statement that God saves sinners on purpose and for his purpose. God saves sinners on purpose and for his purpose. And if you're a Christian this morning, think on this. God saved me on purpose and for his purpose. God saved me on purpose and for his purpose. And in your own way, remind yourself, think on what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And, 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 and I challenge you to not have confidence in this. When Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Christian brother, Christian sister. Does that not inspire a holy, godly confidence in you? This doctrine of election is intended to comfort and encourage Christians. Even to embolden them to share and to declare confidently the gospel of Jesus. God has saved you on purpose and for a purpose. To declare his excellencies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So have confidence about what tomorrow brings, not knowing what tomorrow will bring. God already knows tomorrow. God's already planned for tomorrow. God's already taking care of tomorrow's needs. Have confidence in knowing, Christian, that you are chosen. Third, these greetings of grace come from Peter to the church, to those who are chosen by God, who are strangers, who are exiles by God's will. Peter calls them exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Having said all that we've said about the wonder of God's gracious work in salvation, we can then see that the very reason that Peter calls the Christians exiles, the very reason he calls them sojourners or strangers, is because they have been chosen by God. The fact that they are strangers in a strange land is because God has chosen them. Peter says, as we saw earlier in chapter 2, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And so the very reason that the Christians that Peter is writing to and Christian you today, the very reason that you are a stranger and an exile in this world is because, is because by God's saving work, you have become citizens of a spiritual kingdom. You have become a resident of a new land. Put another way, God chooses believers in Jesus to be exiles, to be strangers in this world. He chooses believers in Jesus to be strange. So though we live in the flesh and in this earthly life under the rule of earthly kings and earthly governors, we're ultimately ruled not by earthly things, but by the king of heaven, Jesus Christ, the son of God, the one who has achieved victory over sin and death. The purpose of Peter's letter is to address these believers who find themselves living as strangers, living as exiles in a strange land, not because they're unacquainted with the world in which they live. In fact, we'll find that prior to their conversion, they were very well acquainted with the world in which they lived. But because their loyalties to a heavenly king above all others leads them to find themselves at odds with the kings and rulers of this world. You cannot declare loyalty to two kings at the same time. You cannot declare loyalty, fealty, love for Christ and loyalty to the world at the same time. And so choosing one will estrange you from the other. Having loyalty to Christ makes us strangers to the world. Having loyalty to the world makes us strangers to Christ. Peter's going to highlight the strangeness of being a Christian, of being heavenly residents in an earthly kingdom because he's going to refer to trials in chapter 1, verse 6 in this world. He's going to refer to passions of former ignorance in chapter 1, verse 14. He's going to encourage the believers to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all kinds of slander in chapter 2, verse 1. He's going to tell the believers that they ought to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls in chapter 2, verse 11. He's going to refer to the importance of suffering for righteousness' sake, in chapter 3, verse 14. He's going to tell the church that Gentiles will be surprised, that as non-believers will be surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery that they themselves previously indulged in, in chapter 4, verse 4. To be a Christian in a world that is not Christian inherently makes us Strange. If you don't on a daily basis feel weird about being a Christian, you're probably stuck in some sort of Christian bubble where all the people you know are Christians. It should feel weird. It should be jarring. It should be disorienting to be a Christian in a world that does not know Christ. As citizens of God's kingdom, worshiping and obeying Jesus Christ as King, we should feel out of place in this world. It's just natural. Or maybe I should say it's just spiritual. The task of the Christian then, our job, our work as an alien, as a foreigner in this earthly world is not to assimilate into the culture of the world. It's not to take on this world's language and this world's actions and this world's culture so that we can fit in. No, the job, the call of a Christian as an alien, as a foreigner is to live a life of holy conduct, Holy obedience to Jesus. A life that serves as a winsome, engaging, even attractive invitation to taste and receive the same grace of God that has made us so strange. We should live by God's grace in such a way that illustrates the transformative work of God in the gospel through the Holy Spirit in us. So that people would see our strangeness as a thing to be desired. So that people would see our obedience to God. And how that sets us as enemies against the world as a thing that they would want because they see the blessings of knowing their God and creator. So earthly strangers who know the riches of God's grace, because we know the riches of God's grace, we can live at peace in any circumstance. Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Why can Peter say grace and peace be multiplied to you? Because he knows they've experienced already the abundance of God's grace. And knowing God's grace, his divine intention to save, we can have great confidence and peace in a world where we live as strangers. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, Paul riding from prison to the church at Philippi. writes this. He says, I'm not speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. Doesn't Paul so wonderfully illustrate what Peter is getting at here in his introduction to his letter? Paul recognizes how he was not made for food. He was not made for money or status or physical well being. He was made to know Christ. So Paul can say, Give me food or don't. Doesn't matter. Paul can say, Give me money and means or don't. No matter. Give me a claim, give me popularity, give me me a reputation and status or take it all away. It doesn't matter because I already am what I was made to be and to have. I was made to be Christ's and to have him as king. Food, money, material possessions add nothing to my life and neither does their absence remove anything. Paul says, I have all I need in Christ. The riches of God's grace to me have allowed me to live in peace. And that, he writes, shackled in the dungeon of a Roman prison. Friend, can you say the same? Can you say the same? That all I have and was ever made to be, I have in Christ. Do you have peace in your life? Because you know not just who you are, but whose you are. Have you tasted God's grace? Do you know the forgiveness that he extends to you through trust in his son, Jesus? Have you given your life to Christ, made him Lord, turned your will over to his that you might be saved, be made holy, be put back in right relationship with God? There is nothing in this universe that gives greater peace than knowing the God who holds this universe in his hands. Christian, we know that God. There is confidence and peace and and assurance in difficult times because we know that God. We should be sharing that with people that don't know him. With people who are struggling day to day. With the trials, the difficulties of, of, of living in a fallen world and with the consequences of our own sin. We should be saying to those who don't know Jesus, find peace in Christ. Find grace in Christ. See confidence and assurance that comes in knowing Jesus. Let's pray.